Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi Advanced Security protects your connected devices, helps you avoid sketchy sites, and sends real-time alerts, so you're in the know. Learn more at cox.com pano. Restrictions apply. Copyright 2020 Cox Communications, Inc. All rights reserved. Hey, I'm David Eliku. And this is The Knowledge, a place to consider big and emerging ideas for anyone obsessed with learning more and living better. Each week, I'll share what I'm learning and speak to a variety of guests to hear what they've learned about navigating the world around us. This week, I'm sharing some thoughts from my newsletter about the trends accelerated by the COVID pandemic, the future of remote learning, and the paradox of privilege. And I really wanna break down this complex idea of privilege into something that can really be understood in order to enable honest and frank conversations to make the future better for everyone. If you love this episode, please do share it with a friend and don't forget to leave a review. You'll probably also love my amazing newsletter I send out every Sunday at theknowledge.substack.com. So, we've all been living through this hell of a pandemic. But something I really want to touch on today that I wrote about not long ago in my newsletter is... The concept of privilege and how it relates to the future of remote learning and everything that we've been promised. Because the thing about crises is they reveal the holes in our elaborate plans and hypotheses. So you have some complex ideas, for example, in economics, where we say markets are going to always act in such and such a way and people are going to do such and such a thing. But the reality, when particularly in crisis, is what's highlighted is how disparate our thoughts and theories are from the reality. How we think people are going to spend money when it's given to them turns out to be different in real life. We've tested so many different things. We we had huge conversations about the realities of universal basic income, for example. Andrew Yang in the US presidential elections pretty much ran on that idea and he got a lot of flack for it. And not long later, we see the idea being put into practice. We see checks being sent out to households across America, and we've seen the impact of that. And of course, people will still say, oh, there's a difference between doing it in times of crisis and there's doing it every single month. However, I think we've really been able to test and engage with a lot of ideas and hypotheses that we've had. And we've seen some of the flaws and we've seen some of the victories. Another great example is, remote working. And we've had corporates for decades that have maintained adamantly that remote working is impossible. And they couldn't trust workers to work from their home. The proletariats would uprise and become unproductive if they were allowed more free time to look after their children and pursue ordinary lives we've really broken down a lot of ideas and understood that some of these things, some of these preconceptions that we had about how life would work and how being remote would work were false. 
And so we live in a world now where remote working for many is a reality. Almost everyone that has a perhaps non-public facing role has been remote for at least a year, if not longer. And we've learned a great many things, but largely what we've learned is that it works and people can be trusted to work alone. It's better for people's lives. It's better for people's mental health. Obviously, not everyone's mental health has been perfect because you have this storm where on one hand you have the benefits perhaps of being remote but then you have the negative externalities of the fact that your children are also remote. And now you have to think about uh, childcare needs. You have to think about so many other things. And meanwhile, people are dying every single day. You know, this is by no means a perfect situation. But all I'm saying is that we've really been able to test some things that were previously assumed to be concrete. Another idea that has been greatly accelerated has been the future of remote learning and so people have said for a while that remote learning is the future of learning and universities will all be offline and there's a great promise there in that it would open up access to people from countries across the world imagine kids in Pakistan being able to enroll at Harvard from their home countries and get the same education have access to the same tutors and leaders and there's tremendous opportunity in that and it's definitely a good dream but the reality of what we've seen since children have been at home learning has been flawed it hasn't been perfect and a great part of that is intertwined in several ways with this big concept of privilege which many people struggle to understand so as an example, I am a school governor. I am a governor and member of the board of trustees for a school in London. And I know I have friends that are governors and teachers. Several of my friends are teachers. My mother was a teacher. Um, and throughout the pandemic, you hear stories of families that are working from home, children that are learning from home and having different levels of access to resources that many people would take for granted. So many households where there is only one household computer. And so who gets to use it? Because mum has work and the two kids both have to go to school. They're in different year groups. You have people cycling around, taking interns to use the same computer or you have throttled internet. So you have low internet bandwidth. People are having to hotspot from mobile phones to be able to access classes, to be able to access work meetings. And so the reality is that there are so many factors that we can easily bypass when we have these dreams of how remote learning should look and can look and would look. Because in real life, people don't have the same access to childcare. People don't have the same access to computers. Part of the reason, to be frank, that remote learning has failed many children is the simple fact that, look, small children find it really, really hard to sit in front of a screen all day, unsupervised for hours, when the content on the screen is not entertaining. So they can't concentrate fully on back-to-back -back classes and homework assignments without supervision and socialization without breaks where you get to play and engage with friends and where you get to have small changes of context 
that again, you take for granted, even just moving between classes, even having the small breaks where you go outside, come back inside, things like that. When you're inside the whole day, you don't get the same brain activity. That's the reality of it. And so just from the perspective of the children, remote learning has been a lot more difficult. But what this has also meant is more and more women in particular being conscripted as emergency teaching assistants. So those who could still work pulled double duty, and the parents that couldn't work had their hands full with the unpaid labour that was thrust upon them. And as a result, the number of women in the American labour force dropped to levels that we hadn't seen since the 70s. Meanwhile, the families that could already afford healthcare or a parent to be actively at home raising kids before the pandemic had far less adjusting to do because they were already used to the idea that at least one parent would be actively taking care of the children and would be setting aside the time to nurture them and support them through the school day. Or they had the facility to have support and they had childcare arrangements that were far more flexible. I was also reading an article not too long ago now, which was after publishing this newsletter, where I was reading, I can't remember the exact statistics, but it was really just highlighting the discrepancy of parents from different income brackets and their work flexibility. And so part of the issue is that you have a huge tranche of parents whose work hours are inconsistent because they might have shift work where they receive the shifts they will do that week on a week-by-week basis, or they do labor-based work where you're frequently asked to work overtime or work additional hours or work in unconventional ways or work unsociable hours. And so the kind of people that do those kind of jobs earn a certain amount of money. And so all of those issues compound when you combine that with the reality of remote learning, where you now also have kids that are at home who need support and who need supervision. But you can't provide that if your hours are unstable. You can't even uh, provide childcare. You can't rely and know that I only work from nine to five on these days of the week, or I only work these three shifts. If your shifts are always changing and often at the last minute, it becomes a lot harder to arrange childcare. It becomes a lot harder to find alternatives. And there is the knock-on effect that it becomes a lot harder for your kids to continue engaging in school. There were a lot of schools on both sides of the Atlantic that also dispensed with grading students altogether due to drops in attainment levels. And on one hand, this might be seen as a good thing. You don't want to give undue and unnecessary pressure to students by forcing them to study, by forcing them to, I mean, they'll be studying anyway, but by forcing them to study, particularly for exams that for many will be life-changing. So on one hand, it can be a benefit to say, okay, don't worry, for this year, you don't need to prepare for such and such exams. However, that picture flips when you consider within some demographics, particularly black children, as an example, there's a well-documented history of racial bias affecting potential trajectory of students simply on the basis of their predicted grades. 
And so if they're not going to have exams where they can prove how well they can do and they're going to have their grades predicted for them, in the UK we had this atrocious example where the government decided that an algorithm was going to predict the grades of students and we saw statistical discrepancies where the algorithm was predicting less for black children than for their peers. And when I say less, I don't just mean comparatively in comparison to their peers. They were being predicted less based on their postcodes, based on other factors, even less than they themselves had historically been doing. So you have students that their teachers would have predicted them an A. They had been working towards an A. And now this algorithm from the void has now predicted them a B or a C. I even saw people being predicted U's. And so there's a lot of things that we've had to navigate since being offline. But the reality is that things haven't been the same for everyone. There was one study I saw that estimated that on average, students will have lost about five to nine months of learning by July of 2021. But that picture is even bleaker for students of colour. Being less likely to have adequate internet access at home or access to live teachers, they have been estimated to fall six to 12 months behind in the same time frame. And so parents that are from economically disadvantaged backgrounds who previously had already had to tell their kids that they had to work twice as hard and be twice as good to get half as much as their peers now have to add to that, that in the last year, their children would have lost almost twice as much education. And so this brings me to the paradox of what we call privilege. In the last few years, I think a lot of people have gotten tired and put cotton buds in their ears whenever they hear quote-unquote social justice words tossed around, such as privilege and systematic injustice. And I know that a lot of the time, people get the feeling that these words are being politicised and being used as a bludgeon with which to whack you over the head. And people feel attacked when they hear people talking about things like privilege, things like institutional racism. But I think part of the issue is that, frankly, we use some of these words that are very broad and don't spend enough time defining them and breaking down what they actually mean in a way that is intelligible and can be understood very broadly. Because a lot of people hear privilege and they think, I mean, I've had a hard life. I've had to work hard. I wasn't gifted a trust fund. I didn't have everything I've worked for thrust into my lap. How could privilege possibly apply to me? People never think that they've inherited some magical attributes just by virtue of being white or male or in some kind of dominant group. And to be honest, I think some of those feelings are justified. So for now, let's dispense with weaponized politicization of some of these terms and let's just have an honest chat. We'll be right back after this break. I often find out the hard way that all IPAs are not created equal. Some are hot bombs that forget about flavor. Others only taste good if you drink them with a heavy meal. Fortunately, Founders Brewing Company has found a way to enjoy an IPA anytime and at any occasion with their all-day IPA. You can taste the hops, of course, but it's the complex array of malts and grains that make all-day IPA a beer that will grab your attention. 
Whether you're relaxing after a long day at work or hanging outside with your friends, all-day IPA will become one of your favorites. It's one reason why Founders is in the top 10 of the nation's craft breweries and a staple in my fridge. When you taste all-day IPA, you'll understand how they got there. Look for Founders in your favorite beer store or check out their full line of beer and now hard seltzers too at foundersbrewing.com. Founders Brewing Company, born and brewed in Michigan since 1997. For me, privilege in the modern context is best described as the intersection of fortune and friction. And in that way, it applies not just by virtue of race, but by a variety of factors endowed randomly by birth. It's something that's been discussed, I think, by Bill Gates and by Charlie Munger as something called the birth lottery or the ovarian lottery. And so... Let's start by talking about fortune as an example. When I say fortune, in this context, I'm not talking about wealth. For me, I would characterize fortune in this context as the convergence of hope and luck. Hope and luck. Very few adults can be truly successful in the modern sense with only a singular instance of luck. There are always several. Behind every story of pulled bootstraps lies a fine harvest of luck, chance occurrences that were capitalised on. And what enables that luck, and what many with privilege have in abundance, is hope. Hope is something we teach children from a young age, and that hope manifests itself in confidence and in audacity. This is being picked first on the football team. It's being told from a young age that you are smart and pretty and strong and you can make anything that you want of yourself. It's not being told that you're going to have to fight and suffer just to survive. By whatever virtues you have at your disposal, when you're groomed from birth, from a very young age, to believe that doors will be opened by your hard work and your skill and your beauty and your predisposition, whatever natural values and characteristics you have, meritocracy becomes an honest reality. Because if you're taught that that is what's going to open doors, if you just work hard and if you dress a certain way and you look a certain way and you do certain things, if you're taught to believe that your actions will result in real world benefit, meritocracy becomes a reality for you. And if meritocracy is a reality, the world is yours for the taking if you simply work hard enough. You can rest safely assured in the knowledge that you'll never be judged or disadvantaged by anything other than your own efforts. You may receive additional benefit by being tall or handsome or strong or brave, but that can't be helped. You were born that way. This is what your parents tell you. And any hope you have of future success will live and die by your confidence and your audacity. All you need to do is be willing to take risks and capitalize on fleeting opportunity and believe in your ability to execute. And to be honest, I believe all of these things are true. But please note that I haven't said that all of the above instantly accrue to anyone born Caucasian or male. However, that said, in a world increasingly dominated by people who share those characteristics, their visibility, seeing 
those people only adds to your hope. So if you are born a white man and you see other white men out in the world, acting out these characteristics that you have been taught from birth will lead to benefit. You believe that it's possible. You believe that it will work. You believe that, wow, I see this person with confidence and with audacity, working hard, doing these things. He's tall, he's handsome. If I do that, if I'm tall, if I'm handsome, if I act a certain way, if I do these certain things, I can achieve similar success. And that's not limited to white men. That goes for everyone. The issue is that with many people, particularly from underprivileged or under-resourced backgrounds, you don't have those same role models. You don't have those same examples to look at and say, wow, I see these people acting out the things that I have been taught will lead to benefit. And if I just follow their example, and if I just do this and I do that, I have a very strong belief that things will work for me. So the reality is that people from all races and backgrounds benefit from good fortune to different extents, whether you're growing up in Lagos or Lebanon or London. But what turns that fortune into privilege is something called friction. Now, in our modern world, many things are multiple times easier than they used to be. In the past, in antiquity, if you sought new knowledge, you would need to visit your local library. And these were knowledge archives that were the preserve of rulers and esteemed scholars who would travel between Alexandria and Ephesus and Constantinople and Nineveh. And when you found information worthy of bringing back home from your travels, you would ask an archivist to let you copy it word for word, by hand, into a fresh scroll. So you had to travel to find new knowledge. You would have to copy it by hand. First of all, you'd need to know how to write. You would have needed to have been taught how to write. You would, you would write by hand. You would copy out the knowledge into your scroll and you would travel back home with your new knowledge. That's what libraries looked like back, back in the day. But today, you have a device in your pocket with more computing power than the rockets that sent man to the moon. The reality, so we're told, is that if you can access the internet, you can tap into an unfathomable well of humanity's collective wisdom. And that's just scratching the surface. Right now, we're having these discussions about AI and NFTs and changing the creator landscape and people are being able to work in different ways. There's so many things that are being opened up by the internet and by platforms and by software. And so if you have access, you have benefit. So my conceptualization of friction is split into two parts. One, I would call natural friction. And the other, I would call manufactured friction. Natural friction refers to resource availability. So as an example, if you don't have the internet in this day and age, you may face almost insurmountable friction in the modern world. And this applies as scale. If you want a good job, but you didn't go to a good school, you'll face higher friction. If you're building a tech startup and you're not in Silicon Valley, you'll face higher friction. And so suddenly, the cumulative eases, step by step, of being born to the right parents, in the right time, in the right society, in the right country, compounded with good fortune, 
yields tremendous privilege. Luck and opportunity, as we've discussed, are everywhere, genuinely. But they certainly exist in higher concentration around those who face less friction. If you know much about tech, you'll know that there are so many tech companies where all the founders went to Stanford and all of them live in Silicon Valley. And that's not to say that their hard work and what they've accomplished wasn't just by their own hands. But it's the fact that when you're in an environment that facilitates your hard work and your enterprise, luck and serendipity is continually generated because you're putting all of these things into a mixing pot. So the reality is that if your parents can afford to send you to a better school or happen to have the right contacts, the friction that you face in encountering stimulating ideas and converting those ideas into viable opportunities decreases drastically. It's a lot easier to be in the right place at the right time when you were there all along. And again, that's not knocking anyone's hard work. It's not knocking anyone's enterprise or their motivation and drive that they had that got them to where they are. It's none of that. It's just recognizing that you may have tremendous good fortune, which is open and available to everyone, but not everyone has it. And you may have an abundance of natural friction by being born in the right place at the right time. Going a step beyond that, one of the most frequently misallocated resources is the benefit of the doubt. You see, when good kids from good homes are let off by policing and justice systems and they're prioritised for healthcare and they're given internships and second chances in the workplace, what we're doing is perpetuating a system that unfairly introduces friction into the lives of citizens who ought to be equal. So, I don't believe that inherently privilege is a bad thing. When you consider the scale of our world, there's always going to be varying degrees of friction. I'm not expecting that in rural Alaska and in Nigeria and in, you know, the, the Midlands of the United Kingdom, everyone's going to have high-speed internet and fast trains and everything that would make your life a dream. You know, there's always going to be varying degrees of fortune and natural friction. Even when we talk about fortune, something I may have glossed over is that some of it is cultural, right? There are cultural differences in the way that children are taught to speak to authority figures. There's clear differences you'll see in the workplace with how children from certain backgrounds will address figures who are seen to have some authority or people that are older than them. There is a deference there that doesn't exist with people that are culturally different to them. And again, that's not ascribing fault to anyone, but it's recognising that these things exist. And so the issue isn't necessarily that privilege exists. When you break down the factors that constitute privilege, many of them are good things. We should confer good fortune to all children. That's a fantastic thing to have, to grow up believing in meritocracy, to grow up believing in your own natural abilities and the fact that if you work hard, everything that you have been born with will bear out good fortune for you. That's a fantastic thing to believe in. It's a fantastic thing to believe in luck and opportunity and serendipity. 
it's a fantastic thing to be born into a society with low natural friction, where you have access to good infrastructure and you have access to opportunities. The issue is that societies should seek to give these things to as many people as possible, instead of pretending that it doesn't exist and in doing so bolster resource hoarding and the manufacture of institutional friction. And so part of the reason that people are often confounded by the term white privilege is the fact that, you know, we're using one term to encompass a multiplicity of incremental factors, which, when taken as a whole, confer some societal benefit. Privilege manifests in various forms, and it's okay to discuss the benefits incurred. It's only when we discuss those benefits that we can speak openly about how to ensure that they're better distributed. Vilifying all endowments of birth ab initio is reductive and polarizing. I'll give you an example. So, I grew up left-handed in Nigeria. And if you grew up left-handed in Nigeria as recently as the 90s, as I did, it meant that teachers had ample license to flog that left-handedness out of you at every opportunity. If you were asked a question and you raised your left hand, you were called to the front of the class and you would be beaten, as an example to your peers. If you were given something and you took it with your left hand, you were beaten. If you were caught writing with your left hand, you were beaten. And as a result... Surprise, surprise, despite my left hand still being my dominant one, I no longer know how to write with it. I can only write with my right hand. Now, I'm sure that we can acknowledge that there was some privilege automatically conferred by birth to anyone that was born right-handed in this society. However, it doesn't mean that every right-handed person was evil. But if a right-handed person was to deny that any form of privilege existed, you're only allowing that injustice to proliferate. If you pretend that the privilege doesn't exist, you're only allowing it to continue and to worsen. Acknowledging the existence of a quote-unquote right-handed privilege in that situation doesn't mean that you should be crushed underfoot in some bloody revolution. All it means is that maybe, just maybe, we shouldn't be introducing manufactured friction for left-handed students. So all students can benefit equally from the privilege of a good education. So, as society moves to embrace more remote forms of education, it becomes even more crucial that we engage in these discussions rather than shying away from the perceived discomfort. The internet has gone a long way towards democratizing access to information. And so we should consider how we can bolster access for those born with greater natural friction. For example, those from underprivileged homes and in under-resourced neighborhoods. The questions that we should be asking are how we can ensure that children from those backgrounds are nurtured with hope from a young age and taught that they can achieve anything that they set their hearts on. The questions we should be asking is, how can we ensure that these children have positive role models that look like them in every avenue of life, that can teach them lessons in confidence and audacity? How can we put them in and around enough spaces where chance and luck and opportunity can intervene? How can we surround our children with serendipity? 
And furthermore, how can we support the families of young children and enable greater community support structures for teenagers? So in essence, what I'm saying is that the more we can openly consider instances of privilege, the more we can work towards reducing friction and widening access to fortune and opportunity. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please do stay tuned for more. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It really helps the podcast. And follow me on Twitter. Feel free to shoot me any thoughts. See you next time. Circle K is America's thirst stop. And Dave's. Especially when Dave needs refreshments for family movie night. So Dave heads straight to Circle K, where he grabs icy Polar Pop cups and frosters for the kids and chilled beer for the grown-ups. Enjoy family movie night, Dave. We'll be here for you all summer long. And right now at Circle K, score with 28-ounce Gatorade. Any flavor, three for $5. So make us your first stop. Circle K, America's thirst stop. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's, uh, actually Geico. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money? Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.